Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have with us Kurt Reinhardt. He is one of the contributors to the Festschrift, Servant of Christ Church in honor of John Stevenson. He's also pastor of Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Gowanstown, Ontario, Canada. Uh, welcome to the Godestine's Crowd, Kurt. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, it's been a a, a long time in planning. We've uh, hit some bumps along the road, either with scheduling or um, other internet problems. But I think we're finally finally going to be able to get this get this done and in in the review mirror, as they say. The That'd be good. Yeah. The. What I want to chat with you about today is your article, uh, Keeping It Real. What a great title. Uh, kind of a double entendre, um, playing off of what you know the world considers to keep uh, w- what it means to keep it real, and then what we as preachers of Christ should think about in keeping it real. Um, what do you mean by keeping it real? And and how is that opposed to, or a contrary, or distinct from how the world means keeping it real? Yeah, I think what I was drawing on when I chose the title is this: what I thought was, or I said was, a relatively modern expression of keeping it real, keeping something genuine. Now I'm probably showing my age, and I think that's a bit of a modern expression because I don't think it actually is anymore. Uh, right. The idea was uh, uh, to address the truth that. In preaching, we have the real presence of God in the sim- similar way that we have him present in the Lord's Supper. So to keep things genuine and what's going on when the pastor gets into the pulpit, that it's not the pastor who's speaking, but it's God himself who's speaking through the pastor to his people. So it's keeping right in the forefront that you as a preacher are not there representing yourself, but you are representing the one true God. Uh, in, in a very incarnational way. Is, is that right? Yeah, that was the point I was trying to make. It really, the springboard for it all was um, my experiences in Scandinavia when I saw some of the pulpits there, which are just beautiful. But one in particular really struck me in one of the churches in Gothenburg, a Lutheran church. I went in and there was the doorway that you went into the pulpit. And then there were these two half circles and one one half circle over top of the over top of the doorway, and my guy, guy pointed out to me. You see what that is there? You got two eyes, and you got a nose, and then you got the doorway, which is the mouth. So the pastor stands in the place of the mouth. So he's the mouth of God in the pulpit. And this wow. is the truth that Luther, you know, sets forward a number of times. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how often it is the case that when we step into the pulpit, how how easy it is for us to forget that we are standing there in the stead and by the command of Jesus. We're speaking on behalf of God 
to deliver what God wants to be delivered. Uh, and what a great reminder. Uh, so often uh, anymore, our church architecture doesn't doesn't remind the pastor of that, nor does it remind the peace, the, the the people in the pews of where we're at and what is happening. The uh, is there a tendency now, as opposed to then, uh, to represent oneself instead of represent God, or to speak on behalf? Uh, to keep it real and authentic and genuine um, in the way the world understands it versus how God desires us to keep it real. I think it's to understand the truth that the pastor's job in the pulpit is to get out of the way and let Jesus speak, not to stand mm -hmm. in front of Christ so people can't see him, but to step out of the side so that they can see him and hear him. It's not about yeah. the pastor. This is one of the great things I learned in my vicarage which I served under Dr. Winger in St. Catharines. And Dr. Winger is a very gifted man, as anybody who's ever heard him speak, or sat, right. sat at his feet and holes. Um, and when I was his vicar, after every service, I was always so nervous and unsure of how I had done. I not only had Dr. Winger as my vicarage supervisor, but then I had three of the seminary professors that sat in the congregation every Sunday. <laughs> And I'd always be so nervous, and I'd try to go to him afterwards and say, well, you know, how did it go or whatever? And he would just say nothing. I was like, I'd be like, well, nothing? And then he taught me very in a very profound way that it wasn't about me. It wasn't a performance. It was about God and what he, what he wanted to do for his people. Mm. Yeah, that, uh, that must have been a bit disconcerting for a seminarian to step into the pulpit. Not only Dr. Winger, I, I was blessed to... Uh, have him as a professor when I was at Westfield House, but uh, then to have three seminary pr professors weekly sitting in the congregation that would be uh, that would cause someone to, to to begin to think about himself and how he's doing instead of really what the task at hand is. Yeah, and who's the one who's promised to be at work to do the task at hand? Right. Okay. The so big then, challenge was. Sorry. Go ahead. The president of the seminary was there. He was sitting in the in the congregation. It was Dr. Grothy, another brilliant mind. And Dr. Grothy suffers from terrible arthritis. And so he'd be sitting in the pew and my eyes would always go to him. And then he would he would wince when I you know be saying stuff. Well, when he was sitting there and well, is that what I said or is it the arthritis that's bothering him? He never knew. <laughs> and it was a terrifying thing. Yeah. So it's a you know Ron Foyerhan really gets onto this idea in the in the article that he wrote for I think it was for the Feshra for Doctor Kleining um, where he talks about uh, about the idea of the prince of the pulpit that has mm -hmm. you know come from reform circles and has moved into Lutheran circles as well where people preachers fellow, fellow pastors can get focused on the man and his abilities and what he's doing. Missing the fact that it's God who's speaking, and so that you know we don't have stars in the pulpit other than the star, which is the star of David, the Lord, who's proclaiming mm -hmm. to His people. So, how does this affect then keeping it real in terms of remembering that you are simply the mouthpiece of God and of Jesus Christ, and that you are to show forth? the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and 
brought us into his marvelous light. How does that affect the way then we prepare uh, and then also carry out that task? You would think that in in one sense, this should um, you know, make us feel, I guess, uh, perhaps not more comfortable, but give us some ease that this is this is Christ speaking through us, but at the same time, it should also kind of raise, it seems, the awareness of uh, we do need to be active in making sure that we're preparing what we ought to be preparing. It, it keeps you on task. It can keep you on task and keep you to the point. So who wants to speak to his people? God wants to speak to his people. It's not about what I have to say to them, but it's about what God has to say to them. So if you're proclaiming something, it better be what the Lord has to say. So the focus on the word itself and prepare by, by you know, giving due attention to that word and study of that word so that we can properly, you know, express it to God's people, proclaim it to God's people. So this requires us to be a student of the word. Um, yeah. I, I remember when I was going through seminary, one of the professors also talked about being a student of the congregation. How does that play into keeping it real? There's the two sides is to recognize who is the one who's speaking. And the second half is who is he speaking to? So Mm -hmm. keeping it real about who the speaker is and keeping it real about who the hearers are. So who are the hearers? The hearers are the children of God and the bride of Christ. So how does the father speak to his children and how does the bridegroom speak to his bride and what does the father have to say to his children what does the bridegroom have to say to his bride and the one thing i always go to is try lecturing your children and see how far you get with them and try lecturing your bride and you really won't get very far with them (laughs) god's given me the wisdom never to do either of those but yeah (laughs) so so if you're not lecturing to them what are you doing because it's not like as it's not like it's an actual conversation you're not eliciting a response, are you? So how is preaching different, I guess? Yeah, you're proclaiming to them. So you're speaking to their hearts. It goes through their mind, but it's to their heart. All right. So the mind is in use, but you're not primarily trying to inform, uh, pass over a body of knowledge. But that's included, isn't it? I mean, there should be some kind of teaching isn't there? Yeah, there there is teaching, but the teaching is to serve the proclamation. Mm. And so Luther would talk about it, the you know, the various points about, you know, proclaiming the doctrine without any mind to the hearers and what they can receive and how they need to receive it is of no use to them. And you might as well not do it at all. It doesn't help anybody. Mm. So that, that truth that I'm looking to proclaim, ultimately what I'm looking to do is to proclaim Christ to them. So if the doctrine is in the text, then we proclaim the doctrine by the, for the purpose of, the, of delivering Christ. It's not to okay. lecture them, you know, not to provide a lecture itself. It's So what do you mean when you say, like, proclaiming Christ? Uh, so often, uh, you know, folks will say something to that effect, and w- it seems as though we agree, but then as you discuss more with others, it becomes clear that you don't agree. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, a friend of mine has a, has a story he tells about, uh, I think he heard from John Kleine, 
about uh, Dr. Sasa and was present at some conference. And somebody got up and said, well, I always preach about the gospel. Mm. And Dr. Sasa got up and he said, well, I never preach about the gospel. I preach the gospel. So the truth of proclamation is a for you proclamation. Mm-hmm. I've often been in situations where the guy has stood up and he said everything that's true. And we can say, yes, that's all very true. But it's describing things and rather than delivering things. So to understand that proclamation is about delivery, which gets to the whole question of the for you. That in order for proclamation to be true proclamation, it has to have the for you. Mm-hmm. The comparison that I make in the essay is to, is to a, a gift that's given that has no gift tag on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you know it's for you if it's got no tag? If your name's not on the tag, then it's not for you. You don't know it's for you. You wouldn't dare to open it if you didn't know it was for you. So Luther emphasized that over and over again, the necessity of, of for you proclamation of actually delivering Christ to people it has to have the for you. Mm-hmm. This is for you. Now, there's a lot of discussion today, I, I think, you know, particularly within Lutheran circles, at least within the United States, perhaps in Canada as well, which is, you know, when I I was taught in seminary to preach, there was, it was kind of this very simple outline which was, um, you're a sinner. This is all based on what what sins you see discussed in the text. Uh, you're a sinner, and then this is how Christ has covered your sin, at least within w- within the text. This is the remedy for that sin that is portrayed within that text, and then there's usually some bit about the sacraments. Uh, the means by which that remedy is brought to you, um, and kind of what's been left off in a lot of modern preaching is, you know, the second half of what Saint Paul does in the the epistles, and in terms of uh, admonishing or encouraging to uh, a faithful living out of what Christ has done for you. How does how is that? incorporated in the keeping it real and the for you-ness of proclaiming what Christ wants proclaimed. I think it's to recognize the truth that what is very striking about about this uh, sermon at the Transfiguration, that you have you have you have Moses and you have Elijah and you have Jesus, and then they're left with Jesus only. The Lord's sermons, God's sermons always end with Jesus only. Mm. But we're pointed to Christ to speak of and proclaim, well, this is who you are in Christ and this is what you do in Christ. This mm-hmm. is who God is making you to be in Christ. You know, it flows out of the truth of that you only have Christ. It's all about Christ. Okay. So it's always bringing it back to not like a, now here's this separate thing, separate from who you are in Christ or what Christ has done for you as uh, somehow it's a distinct or an add-on, but this is a recognition or a proclamation of this is what the life in Christ actually looks like. And we know that Christ is here to give life, right? To make all things new. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And the the idea that what you do doesn't make you a child of God, but because you're a child of God, this is what you do. This is what Mm -hmm. the children of God do. Yeah. Now, how do you... I mean, is there a sense in in that where you, you know, the way Paul thinks about it in Romans 6, 7, and 8, 
that 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 is a struggle, right? It is something that you kind of have to work at. Um, uh, constantly going back to the reality that Jesus saves us from this body of death, and um, that because He's given us this Spirit, we can put to death uh, the uh, the flesh. Um, how do you bring keep it real in that sense? Like you know, we often talk about how. Uh, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, and th- then we tend to think about it as kind of a like a machine, like it's automatic in the sense that uh, it's a math problem or, or, or some sort that that doesn't require effort. Uh, how do you keep it real with the you know this actually does this is work and it is a struggle, but not a work that is appeasing or uh, or something that that uh you know appeases god's wrath or propitiates sin uh but rather this is the struggle that we live in uh with that new life that we've got these two things warring within us which at the end is what you know what at the end of that struggle then paul is thrown back on christ you know right a man that i am who will save me from this body of death so the struggle carries on because it's constantly throwing us back to Jesus. That's the only place that we have to go. Mm-hmm. And as we go back to Jesus, then we enter the struggle again. Yeah. And we fall flat on our face again and get thrown back to Christ. And so it's a constant returning to Christ. Yeah. To understand the truth, I think that you know that we are God's workmanship, that God is at work within us to do these things. And that our only hope is that God is at work within us to do these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, reading a Roman Catholic Cardinal from the 17th century, Cardinal Bona. And at the one point he says, the only thing that we can claim as our own, and this is a good thing for preachers to keep in mind, the only thing that I can claim as my own is only coming from me as my misery and my sins. Everything else comes from God. God is not the author of my misery or my sins. Everything else that I do is his work in me and through me. Uh, so you talk about how... Uh, how keeping it real should also inspire us beyond just being lazy. Um, what does that look like as a preacher? Like maybe lay out at, at, for us kind of what you do uh, as maybe not like the model, but as a possibility for what you know guys can imitate or say they're stuck in what they've been doing for the past 10 years. What are suggestions that you might give so that they could keep it real and not become lazy uh, in their approach to preaching? Well, the first is to pray. (laughs) And it's it's that whole thing of the, you know, the the fact that God is speaking through you is both terrifying and comforting. It's a terrifying thing, something we should be mindful of, that this is a holy thing. And that, that spurs me on to why well, I got want to do the best I can in this. Uh, it's comforting in you know my inadequacies and my inabilities and my you know whatever I'm struggling with, that God is at work here and he will do what he wants to do. My one of my constant prayers, you know, for years, but even after I had a massive stroke in twenty seventeen and went through terrible anxiety afterwards and had all kinds of stuff going on. But it was just constantly going back to well, you put me here. You've got something to say. You better be at work to say it because I got nothing. 
you know, to constantly go back to that truth that God is at work to do this. So then going forward, well, practically, what does it look like? Well, to meditate on the text, study the text, to go through the original Greek, look at things, you know, look at commentary, whatever, examine that way. But one of the things I find very helpful is go to Luther, you know, to read mm-hmm. other preachers, other sermons and ponder it and hear the, hear the words as they're spoken to you. What's the saying to me? And then carry forward to what does God have to say to his people? Mm-hmm. So uh, putting yourself in the place of the hearer uh, and how, in other words, it sounds like how this text affects you and what it does to you can actually help to inform you what the text has to say to others. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And think about how um, you would explain yeah. it to your children. Okay. Yeah, that would be helpful. Um, and so along with this, you have that the pastor must be on guard uh, against speaking over the Lord or over the people. What do you mean by over the Lord? And what do you mean by over the people? Uh, so so the idea of speaking over the Lord and that kind of like when you're having a conversation and you want to say what you want to say, and so you interrupt the other person or they're talking and you you just speak over top of them. So the whole idea that it's not about you know getting up in the pulpit to entertain people, you know, with how well you can say things or the little story about your vacation or whatever that you think is really funny and you'll get a laugh out of it and they'll like that when they hear that. <laughs> so that their whole purpose is to deliver the word of the Lord, not not you. One of the things I really like from the fathers, and I think I ran across it in, in Gregory the Great. Um, the whole idea that, that the pastor is the friend of the bridegroom. And it's not his job mm-hmm. to court the bride for himself, but for the bridegroom. You don't want your best man making eyes at the bride and trying to woo the bride for himself. You're called to woo the bride for the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. So to recognize it's not about me shining up there, it's about Christ shining up. And the idea of speaking over the people is that, that you're going like over their heads. So that, again, I've had, you know, listened to sermons, have been in situations where the depths of what was being said and even the beauty of what was being said was, you know, incredible. And yet, I just went, you could tell it was going over the people's heads. They didn't understand anything of what was being said to them. It doesn't profit them at that point then. You say the surest way to ensure that you are not speaking over the Lord uh, is uh, to remain textual. And then you have this comment yeah. about... Uh, you know, if at the end of your sermon, a rabbi or imam could have said amen to the sermon that, uh, you, you know, you haven't really done the task. Um, what do you mean by that? Like whether an, a rabbi or imam could say amen, how does that help us to diagnose our own keeping it real? You think that to look at the truth that if it's Christian and truly Christian, then the uh, rabbi and the mom wouldn't be able to say amen to it. Then, so you have to mm-hmm. look at it, is this something that Christ would say? Is this something, as I often refer to my, my last name being Reinhardt, I'll say, well, I'm not Rabbi Reinhardt. I'm not here to tell you how to get out of things. I'm not here to tell you the way to get around the law. I'm here to proclaim the law. I'm not here to encourage you towards you know, ways to make yourselves holy, but to be holy in Christ. So unfortunately, I've been in, in places and I've traveled throughout the world, various different church bodies, and, and sometimes the whole sermon, not one mention of Christ at all. And I, 
And even then, just tacking the name of Jesus on the end of the sermon doesn't make you a Christian. The rabbi mm -hmm. and the imam can also mention Jesus. How are you mentioning Jesus? How are you proclaiming Christ? Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like the, you know, as you have already mentioned, the Jesus and his life ministry, his uh, atoning work on the cross, this is central to what God has to say, and it shouldn't be kind of like a, a an add-on. It should be the goal that you're going to, you know, so the journey up to that point should be all pointing in that direction to the cross. And the other the other way that I had it described when I was in seminary, actually, one of my professors was that the, the cross should be the weight-bearing wall of your sermon. So for those who understand weight-bearing walls and construction, if you knock out a weight-bearing wall, the whole place will collapse and it holds up the whole structure. So the cross, and this is a very good image, the cross beams of the cross should be the weight-bearing wall of the sermon. If you take that out, then the whole thing should fall apart and make no sense. And so what are the pitfalls uh, that sermons that don't have the cross as the weight-bearing, the load-bearing walls of the sermon, what do those sermons end up uh, being? Uh, I think the danger is that you're you're directing people towards themselves. You'll end up directing people towards themselves. Mm -hmm. So they they become more about you know moralisms that type of thing. Yeah, there is no savior. There's the only person that's saving anybody is yourself, and we know how good we're doing that. Mm -hmm. so all you do is preach them into despair. Yeah, th there's this line that you have uh, about you're there to to show forth the true Christ, and then you have this line about there are moralistic Christs, philosopher Christs, humanitarian Christs, socialist Christs, and woke Christs, but there is, however, only one true Christ, Christ crucified. Uh, and if our sermons don't focus there, then it seems like they can go in all of those other directions where we focus on an aspect of maybe what we consider the the Christian message to be, not the heart of what that message is. Yeah, you want the real Jesus to step forward in your sermon, <laughs> not the wannabe ones. Yeah. So at the end, uh, you talk about how keeping it real about who the true preacher is can help him to keep it real about what he proclaims to God's children. Uh, and I think that really kind of sets things into perspective. Like when you say keeping it real about who the real preacher is, you mean uh, that God is really the one speaking. And uh, and as the bride, uh, let the bridegroom speak, not the not the best man. Uh, don't yeah. become adulterous in that regard. Uh, yeah. Is the, are there practices that you found helpful in reminding yourself? Do you have something in the pulpit that reminds you of this? Do you do you when you're preparing? Do you in your prayers? Do you ask God to remind you, what are some of the things that help, are help, you have found helpful that remind you of, you're just a mouth, 
um, uh, not, not, not God himself. I think one of the first things is my vestments, you know, to, to be clothed in Christ and the office of Christ, to focus. It's not about, it's not about me. It's about the one who's working through me. Yeah. And I mentioned that in, in the one, uh, one pulpit in the one of our churches here, there's a little plaque that says, please, sir, we would see Jesus, you know, from the <laughs> Greeks. And it's like, this is what it's all about. And, and I, I didn't, I mean, there wasn't one here when I came, but I put a crucifix up at the back of the church where I can see it. Some churches put a clock up there to keep the guy on time. <laughs> but I put a, a crucifix up there. So if there's a clock, then go change the clock for a crucifix. And, Right. Uh, your eyes are on Christ and you're proclaiming them. So uh, your vestments, uh, having a crucifix in sight, um, uh, even printing out a, a, a Bible verse reminding you that you're there to, to, to show them Jesus. Um, what is I think the... Again, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. When I, when I, part of my prayer whenever I'm, before I get into the pulpit is always... You know, that built off this thing that I said earlier, that, Lord, I've got nothing but what you give to me. I am nothing but what you make me to be. And I can do nothing but what you do through me. Mm-hmm. So I'm nothing. You're everything. Is that that thing that Luther said, that God creates out of nothing. So until we become nothing, God can do nothing with us. So it sounds like, you know, even, for lack of a better way of saying it, personal piety plays a, a pretty large role in... Um, facilitating this kind of mindset. Yeah, I think it, you know repentance is the truth, and, which is a part of personal piety. But is that a truth of that God is everything? God gives everything. I'm not my own God. I'm certainly not these people's God. So God will have to be at work to give them what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I need. What sort One of, of things? Um, I, I, go ahead. Well, one of the things I sometimes poor mothers often struggle to with their children and things that are going on. And one of the things I always say to them, well, look at your hands. You see any nail marks on those hands? You're not the Lord. You don't have to carry this this way. You're not their savior. And I think it's advantageous for me sometimes to like, look in the mirror, hold up my arms, look in the mirror. There's no feathers coming out of these arms. I'm not the Holy Spirit. So, so this is kind of like a fine line, isn't it? Like, recognizing that you are like holding those two things together at the same time, that you have a duty that you, uh, that you shouldn't become lazy in, but that it's not your no. doing. Yeah. It, it's a, the tension that's there, that, but holding on to the fact that God is the one who's a, doing it, that gives me confidence that I can go forward to do what he's given me to do. So mm-hmm. he has given me you know, a task to do to be, you know, to meditate on the words, to study the word and prepare what I'm going to say. So like the one time I had, uh, he was a son of the congregation. His mother was still a member here. He had moved away a long time ago and he died rather suddenly. I went to the funeral to be with the mother and uh, there was some uh, Pentecostal pastor that came in to do the funeral. He came in at about uh, 15 minutes before the thing, went up into a room upstairs and then funeral home. Then he came down and he, started the service and his sermon was you know one of the things that he said before he got into it was is i'm a lawyer i don't get paid to do this and i went upstairs to prepare you know to preach to you today and he got into the into the sermon and it was just all about him and what he had done around done and all these things 
nothing to do with Christ or with the, the poor gentleman that had passed away. And I thought afterwards, well, we got what we paid for then. <laughs> so is this your plea to pay your pastors well? <laughs> <laughs> well, St. Paul tells them to do that. But... <laughs> good, good. Uh, any final thoughts, like any final uh, encouragement to the new pastor as he's stepping into uh, this task, things to think about, pray about, um, to work on uh, so that we don't either forget who we're representing or we don't forget um, you know, the, the duty that we have in representing him. I think it's always to return to that truth that the Lord has called you to this place and the Lord is at work to do what he wants to do for his people in this place and through you. To hold on to that, to live in that truth, mm-hmm. that it may propel you forward to do the best that you can with what the Lord wants you to do. And I think most yeah. importantly, to really focus on that idea that it's proclamation, that the sermon is, or preaching is proclamation. It's not description. I've sat so many times and Again, the guy said everything that's true, but he described all that. Well, Christians do this. Christians are this. You know, God has done this for Christians. And it's like, well, but how do I know that's for me? You know, all these things that you're describing, well, that's not me. And I want you to hear it and say it, that it's for me. I need to hear that it's for me. Yeah. And don't yeah, there be afraid is that, to take up the voice. Yeah. There is that sense that you you have, uh, I think as Robert Preuss said, you know, that that all of the statements of the gospel, at least within the uh, the scriptures themselves, um, are, our inclusion in them are by you know logical implication. And uh, when you when you see the preachers of the New Testament step forward, they take that logical implication and apply it specifically to individuals. And there is this call for for modern preachers to do the same, which is to take the logical implication that is there within the scriptures about who God is and what he has done for men or for the world or for people, uh, that they take that implication and kind of do the syllogistic work to say, not only did he do it for the world or for men or for people, in general, but specifically then, thus for you. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, if, if the Amazon guy can get the package to your door, then the pastor should be able to get Jesus to the people. <laughs> for you, yeah. Yeah, signed, sealed, delivered. Yeah. Uh, good. Well, thank you for your time, Kurt. Uh, thank you for this essay. If you guys have not picked up this volume... Servant of Christ Church, a best shrift in honor of John Stevenson. Uh, I encourage you to do so. Uh, it really is a, a, a wonderful collection of essays, uh, and this is one of them. So uh, thank you, Kurt, for setting that pen to paper and for sharing your experience and insight with all of us. Well, thank you. 